This morning, we are starting a new series titled Skeptics Welcome uh, by addressing this very uh, important issue of the resurrection. Now, even if you're not a skeptic, um, even if you don't think that these issues are problematic uh, for you, you probably all know somebody who is or who does who does think these issues are problematic, and these are actually the very issues that are keeping them from maybe embracing Jesus and embracing the Christian, embracing the Christian faith. And so it's really important to have an intelligible understanding of some of these topics. And so over the next 10 weeks, as Emily had mentioned, we're going to be uh, discussing these various issues, which you can find on those cards that uh, you would sat upon if you sat down. I would encourage you to take that card, pass it out to somebody who might be interested in these topics, uh, who might have questions. You need to realize that the vast majority of people that you go to work with every single day, uh, that are your neighbors, that are your family members, they do have questions. They do think these are problematic issues. And so we encourage you to come back and learn uh, some of the ways that we discuss these as people of faith, how we understand these as people of faith. And so this morning we are beginning this very important series by discussing the problem of the resurrection, appropriately being Easter and all, the problem of the resurrection. Now, the reason this is a problem, and, and I don't know about you guys, and maybe, maybe your experience in life has just been different than mine, but the reason this is a problem is that when people die, they, they stay dead. Has your experience been any different than mine? When people die, don't they typically stay dead? You can answer that. Yeah, okay. When people die, thank you. Don't, when people die, don't they typically stay dead? Yeah. And so it does kind of pose somewhat of a problem. I mean, that's what science tells us. That's what experience tells us. That's what our, our walking upon this planet has told us, that when people die, they typically stay dead. And so when Thomas, Thomas was one of Jesus' 12 best friends, when Thomas hears that Jesus has risen from the dead, what does he say? He says, no way. Jesus didn't rise from the dead. You know what? Because Jesus rising from the dead doesn't fit into my paradigm. It doesn't fit into my understanding of how science works. It doesn't fit into my understanding of uh, my experience upon this planet. I do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead until Jesus is standing before me and I can touch his scars and touch his side and actually have a conversation with the living, risen Jesus. There's no way Jesus rose from the dead because that does not fit into my paradigm to what happens when people die. And so a week later, Jesus is there in the flesh. Thomas touches his scars. This isn't an apparition. Jesus isn't a ghost, and Thomas believes. (laughs) But how convenient, right? I mean, come on, wouldn't that be nice if Jesus would just kind of show up here in the flesh and be like, okay, here, here's here's my scars. Touch my side. Have a meal with me. Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, how convenient for Thomas, right? Uh, We just don't get that luxury, though. We don't get that luxury. Here's what Jesus says. Because you have believed in me, because you've seen me, you, you, you've believed, he says. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And so Jesus is saying, guys, this isn't going to be easy. I, I, I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it more than anybody. This is not going to be easy. I mean, come on. There are going to be billions upon billions of people for millennia who are not going to have the luxury of touching my sides and touching my scars and, and interacting with me in the flesh. This is going to be an issue of contention where some people are going to get it, And some people aren't. You guys get that? This is going to be an issue of contention where some people are going to get it, some people aren't. There are going to be plenty of people who are not going to believe, and that's exactly what Jesus is saying. So when our children come home from school, you know, uh, elementary even these days, and they hear from their history teacher that, you know, uh, miracles don't happen because science can disprove all the miracles. And creation, come on, that was just a myth. Come on, the creation account in Scripture, come on, who, who, who have, uh, that's so ignorant to believe in such a, a foolish idea. 
The resurrection of Jesus, man, people don't rise from the dead. Jesus gets it. Jesus gets that there are going to be skeptics. Jesus gets that people are going to have questions. Our kids' science teachers are not surprising anybody. They're not surprising Jesus, certainly. Jesus isn't up in heaven scratching his head thinking, man, you know, I just thought when I rose from the dead, people throughout all of the world for the rest of eternity were just going to get it. That it was just going to be easy to believe and people were just going to grasp it. Nobody was going to doubt and there weren't going to be any more skeptics. That when I rose from the dead, everyone was just going to get it. Jesus isn't sitting up in heaven thinking that. Plenty of people are not going to have believed. See, when what we hear doesn't align with what we experience, of course that we're going to struggle. Of course there are going to be skeptics. Our kids' teachers are simply tapping into a very Western notion called naturalism. It's, it's a simply idea that nature can explain everything, and there is no need for the divine to explain anything away. Now, we'll discuss this idea later in the series, but if you've already determined that miracles don't exist, if you've already determined that there is a natural explanation for every single thing that ever happens, then it doesn't matter what is going to happen to you, you're going to find a natural explanation to what you are experiencing. You're, you'll, you'll explain it away. You know, the, the women went to the wrong tomb, or the disciples were just hallucinating, or, or, or Jesus, Jesus didn't actually die. You'll explain everything away as naturalistic. And you'll categorize the whole Jesus narrative as a myth. Well, you know, I don't know about you, but that doesn't jive with what Scripture says. It doesn't jive with what Jesus says. It doesn't jive with my own experience of the risen Lord Jesus. But we can't all be right. Naturalists and those who are faithful, they can't all be right. And so what do we do with it all? It raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? I mean, was Jesus even real? I mean, come on. Was he actually a historical person that even existed in history? Uh, how, how could somebody rise from the dead, right, that doesn't align with my experience of what happens to dead people? Is just, just a myth that we tell our children so that they can sleep better at night and that so that when they go to funerals, they don't have to, you know, cry for the rest of their lives? Is this just something we tell each other to make us feel better about life and death? Here's the thing. You guys might have grown up in a faith system like that. You may have grown up in a, in a faith system that gave you answers to questions like these, but those answers don't make sense anymore. You know, when you were a child, you thought it was easy to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, but then you went off to college and your biology teacher just said, you know, that thing, kind of thing doesn't happen. And so you abandoned it. You know, you may have believed that God answers prayer, but oh, God didn't answer your mother's prayer about your father. You know, you... You may have believed that God is good and that he is for us and that God wants our best and that he's our advocate, but, but then why is life so hard for you? You may have been told that God punishes evil, but you look around and you're like, come on, really? Man, the evil are the ones who are prospering. The evil are the ones who are thriving. Wickedness is everywhere. There's pain, there's suffering on every street corner. So God, really, do you punish evil? You may believe that God loves you, but then you wonder why you feel so alone and why you suffer with depression. See, our childhood faith doesn't make sense with our adult life, and so for a lot of people, they walked away from faith in Jesus. When what we experience in life as adults doesn't match with what we were told as children, then there's this gap. And a lot of people look at that gap and they say it's not worth it. It's not worth pursuing. It must not make sense. 
And what concerns me is that the church has let a generation or two or three of people walk away because the church has created this box that de- demands conformity. If you cannot conform to the ideals and the ideas within this box, then there's the exit, and you're welcome to it. If there is no room for questioning, and there is no room for doubt, and there is no room, certainly, for science within this box. And so when life happens, and the life we live, and the life we experience, it, it crashes up against that box, then life wins, and we abandon the box. Life wins, we reject the box. Life wins, we kick the box to the curb, and we say, you know what? My life is going to rule over my experience, my, my, the answers I've been told as, as a child within that, within that box. And so we at Restoration Church are hoping to abolish the box. This doesn't mean that we don't have convictions. It doesn't mean that we don't have principles. But it means that we desire to be a wrestling church. We desire to be a church that, that looks at these questions and we're like, man, there's got to be answers. There's got to be solutions to these. And so let's wrestle with them. Let's tackle these questions together. Let's figure it out. But let's keep Jesus central to all of it. And so we invite you back for the rest of the series. But we don't only invite you back to the rest of the series. We invite your friends back. We invite your neighbors and your coworkers and the people that you are having conversations with about these very topics back to have these conversations with us over the next 10 weeks here at Restoration Church. Because we all know people who want to know God. We all know people who are dialoguing with these. We all know people who are skeptical about these things. And they have experiences that just don't make sense with what they understand about God. And so invite them back to join you over the next 10 weeks. And not only that, but we also have a series called Starting Point, where it's a smaller group. If this context isn't right for them, there is a small group context starting on April 19th, where we'll walk for eight weeks um, through the basics of the Christian faith, and where it's a, it's a forum, essentially, for anybody to ask any question that they may have. And so if you would like to sign up for that, you can do so on our website or in the yellow book. Let us know, and we'd be happy to get you plugged into that. But this morning, the question that I want to address is, where do we base our faith in Jesus, our faith in Jesus, as a historical person who actually did the things that not only he claimed to do, but all those people around him claim that he did? Mainly, rise from the dead. First, there are several accounts of Jesus' life beyond what the Bible tells us, and this is actually really important because it's not just a Bible thing. It's not just a story thing that we were told as children. This is history. There was a guy by the name of Tacitus. He was a Roman historian who lived in the first century. He said this, To suppress the rumor, Nero falsely charged with the guilt and punished Christians who were hated for their enormities. So Nero really, really hated Christians, in other words. Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. But the pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out again and only through... And not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Nice thing to say about the the city you love, right? There's another guy named Josephus, and he lived in the first century as well. He was a Jewish historian. He wrote this. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who performed surprising deeds and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Messiah. And when, upon the accusations of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him. 
and the tribe of the Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. And so all this, and the several other accounts I, I could have drawn light to, tells us that there was an actual man who lived in the first century, known as Jesus. And he was the Christ, so he was told. He performed many miracles, did many miraculous deeds in the first century, and it started a movement around a pernicious superstition that he had risen from the dead. And the people who were following him have not ceased to follow him. In fact, they are actually growing in number. Now, that's all well and good, right? I mean, there's historians who talk about Jesus. That's cool. There's the Bible that talks about Jesus, and that's great as well. But we don't primarily believe that Jesus rose from the dead because historians tell us. We don't primarily believe that Jesus rose from the dead because the Bible tells us so. You guys might not know this, but there were tens of thousands of people who believed that Jesus rose from the dead before Tacitus, before Josephus, before any biblical authors ever wrote about him. Tens of thousands of people believed that Jesus rose from the dead before anybody wrote about him. In fact, people began to believe that Jesus rose from the dead the very morning that Jesus rose from the dead. But come on, I mean, wouldn't it have been nice if there was some video footage of the event? I mean, wouldn't that just make it so much easier for us? I mean, come on, Mary, where were you with your, with your cell phone, with your iPhone on the day of the resurrection? Couldn't you have just snapped a, a little selfie with Jesus there? Couldn't you have just taken the video footage? That would have just made it so much easier on us. I mean, Thomas, when he was touching Jesus' side and, and touching his, his scars on his wrists, come on, when, where's the viral footage? Because isn't that what we would have done? I mean, if Jesus showed up here, wouldn't we just all take out our cell phones and start snapping some footage and, and let it go viral? But, but the irony of this whole thing is that the disciples and the people who saw Jesus rise from the dead the morning he rose from the dead did the exact same thing that we would have done if we saw Jesus rise from the dead. They took to social media. They took to chatter. Granted, they didn't have phones, but they began to tell everybody they knew about this incredible thing that happened. Yeah, they didn't have the video footage, they didn't have the cell phones to capture any of it, but they began to tell every single person that they knew about the incredible thing that they experienced. They began to talk about it, they began to write about it. And so we believe Jesus rose from the dead, not because the Bible tells us so, because there were tens of thousands of people who believed Jesus rose from the dead before the Bible even came into existence. We believe Jesus rose from the dead because of the social media, because of the chatter. Because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote down what they had seen or we're told by witnesses, because Paul, someone who initially wanted to destroy everything that Christ ever you know, put his name on, eventually experiences the risen Lord and, and actually becomes the, the greatest advocate for the Christian faith the world has ever known. All of these men and so many more believe Jesus rose from the dead and began to write about it. But there's another guy in the first century that many of you know the name of. In fact, I mentioned him briefly earlier. His name was Nero. He's an important part of all of this as well. You know, most people um, don't know many Roman emperors, but they probably know a little bit about Nero. Now, you probably don't know any laws that he created. You don't know really probably pretty much anything about him. You don't know who his parents were. You don't know the kind of life he lived, probably. But you probably know two things about Nero. The first thing that you probably know is that he burned the city of Rome to the ground. Uh, Ten of the 14 districts, in fact, he completely burned to the ground. And to shift the blame off himself, he blamed the... Christians. We wrote, we wrote about that. Actually, Tacitus wrote about it. He blamed the Christians for his mistake of having burned Rome to the ground. Now, a really important question is, how could Nero persecute Christians in Rome 30 years after the resurrection? 
Now, a lot of people have studied how myths and fables develop. You know, a myth is basically the adaptation of an event that happened. And over time, it gets exaggerated and exaggerated to the point where people believe something that happened, but it is based on something that sort of happened. It's kind of what a myth is. Yeah, it's got some historical accuracy, but it's kind of based on a tale. And study after study have determined that it takes a minimum of 40 years for a myth to develop. But in fact, it takes usually anywhere between 60 to 80 to even 100 years for a myth to actually develop. And the reason that a myth takes so long to develop is because the people who are eyewitnesses of that event have to have died. They would just say, no, here's how it actually happened. That's not how the myth goes. Here's not how the story goes. I was there. I witnessed it all. Here's how it actually happened. The people who experienced the event itself have to have died. So the question is, how could Nero persecute Christians 30 years in AD 64 after the resurrection? And the answer is because there were tens of thousands of Christians in Rome 30 years after the resurrection. And this isn't history. This isn't Bible. This is just history. And if there are tens of thousands of Christians in Rome 30 years after the resurrection, then there are thousands of Christians in Rome within 20 years of the resurrection. There are hundreds of Christians in Rome within 10 years of the resurrection. This is history. It's not Bible. History tells us that when Nero was looking for a group of people to blame his mistake on, there were tens of thousands of Christians in Rome that he could blame. And the reason I say this is because, you know, when you're in college or elementary school, for, the, for that matter, or any skeptical circle, people are going to try to convince you that this story was fabricated and that it was just a myth. And how could you ever believe that, right? Because it was written down and recopied again and again and it got deeper into legend. It was eventually included in the Bible that, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, but come on, we can't believe that because what? People do not rise from the dead. But we don't believe it because the Bible tells us so. The New Testament wouldn't be compiled for another 300 years years, we believe it because there were tens of thousands of Christians in the city of Rome who believed in this. And these Christians weren't in Jerusalem, right? They, they weren't even in Judea or Samaria, close to where it all took place. They were 1,500 miles away in the city of Rome who believed that Jesus had arisen from the dead. And so we believe it because Jesus rising from the dead did something so profound that it began to change everything that anybody in the first century knew. And those who saw it and those who experienced began to write it down and they began to talk about it. So when Paul is writing to the Corinthians about the implications of the resurrection, he says this, For what I received I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep. That's his idiomatic language for have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And at last he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. And so you want to talk about the resurrection? You want to hear what the resurrection was like? Then, then go talk to the 500 people who saw the risen Lord. Here are their, their Facebook profile accounts, right? Here's their phone numbers. Here's their addresses. Go talk to the 500 people who are still living, who experienced the risen Lord. But the really fascinating thing about this and this becomes so important, is that all of these people mentioned, every single one of them, the disciples, the 500, all of them abandoned Jesus on Friday night. Sure, you know, they, they, they were all faithful followers of Jesus before uh, he died, and yeah, they may have showed up to the crucifixion to watch him die, 
But come Saturday morning, there were no more followers of Jesus. Nobody followed Jesus Saturday morning because he was a false, he was a dead Messiah. Messiahs don't die, right? Messiahs are the ones who are political leaders who ride on horseback to defeat the Romans. And if you are a dead Messiah, then you have failed. Just like all the other Messiahs who claim to be the Messiah failed. You are a failed Messiah if you're hanging on a cross. All the disciples gave up believing that their Messiah was from God. And now they believe that Jesus was just another false, fake Messiah to add to the list of all those who had come before him. Yeah, they were passionate followers of Jesus until Jesus died because a dead Messiah is no Messiah at all. And so they scattered and they hid away in locked rooms because they believed that they were next, that their heads were next to go on the chopping block. Man, they, they were associating with a, with a false Messiah. And so all the authorities now were coming after to round up all the people who were in cahoots with that false Messiah. They believed they were next, so they ran and they scattered. And so the really important question is, how would and what would compel someone who was sought after, being chased by authorities because of their association with Jesus, being full of fear and cowardice while running and protecting themselves, what would make someone make a complete 180-degree turn to begin preaching the very message, preaching the very message that would ultimately lead to their horrific deaths? I mean, think about it. What would it take for a person to have lost all hope in the direction of your life? Absolutely all hope in the direction of your life. And then as you wake up one morning, reinstall it. And not only reinstall it, but believe and anchor your very existence in that to the point where you're willing to die for it. What conspiracy would have convinced not only the disciples, but also an additional 500 people to lay down their lives and to be taken in such horrible faction? I mean, wouldn't these people just deny Jesus the minute that their heads were on the chopping block? I mean, wouldn't they just, as their heads were literally about to be separated from their body, finally be convinced just to give it up? I mean, come on, guys. You see that glint of the sun off the, off the axe coming down? You're like, okay, okay, yeah, it was just a hoax. It was just a hoax. I mean, come on, yeah, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. No, but every single one of these, the 12 disciples, 11 disciples, and the 500 people who saw Jesus proclaimed Jesus' death and resurrection to the very end. Peter is crucified upside down proclaiming Jesus. Paul is beheaded under Nero proclaiming Jesus. Thomas is gutted by a lance proclaiming Jesus. James was thrown off the Temple Mount They tried to stone him to death after that didn't work, and then, for good show, they beat his head in with a club, all the while proclaiming Jesus. Several thousands of Christians died in Nero's circus. Nero's circus was the arena by which he had his games, and so he would take all of these Christians that he rounded up, that he blamed for starting the fire. He would dress them in animal skin, he would soak that skin in blood, and he would unleash them to the wild animals and to the dogs, the lions, the tigers, the bears, to be eaten to death. Others he would take and he would douse in oil and he would put them up on high poles so that they could play their games into the night as they lit them on fire to light up the arena. All of these men and women could have easily spared the lives if they simply would have denied Jesus, denied his resurrection. But none of them did. None of them did. What would compel someone to completely change their mind? Having seen Jesus die on Friday, run in fear for the lives on Saturday, but be willing to die on Sunday. What convinced them to do this? What would convince Paul to stop persecuting Christians and actually begin to embrace the very message that he was trying to rid the world of? What changes people to do such radical things? I mean, think about your own life. What changes you to do radical things? What convinces you to do radical things? Now, here's the thing. 
People are willing to die for all sorts of things, all sorts of causes people will lay, lay down their lives for. People strap bombs to themselves all of the time, dying for causes that they believe in. And so you need to catch this, because this is a really important caveat to all of this. Those who laid down their lives because of Jesus and for what they knew to be true did not do it for themselves. Right? The jihadist who straps a suicide bomb on himself and goes into a crowded building is doing it because he believes that the harem of women that he is going to receive in his paradise is going to be multiplied by a thousand. He believes that the party that is going to be uh, had for him in paradise is just going to be that much more extravagant because he is laying down his life for this very selfish cause. But what selfish reason did the disciples have for laying down their lives? What selfish reason did the disciples have for for burning at the stake? They didn't have anything. There's no promise of greater reward for it. They simply had the truth of an experience. The truth of something that, that changed their life. And so what changes people to do such radical things? Experience does. The disciples saw Jesus because they had took down his lifeless body from a cross and then put it inside a tomb. And then two days later, that Jesus, that same Jesus, had risen. And he appeared to over 500 people in the flesh as the risen victorious Lord. This wasn't some apparition. This wasn't some ghost. He wasn't just stumbling around, barely able to stand, as one might expect someone who just rolled out of a, out of a cave after having been beaten and tortured and crucified two days earlier. They experienced the risen, victorious Jesus, and it changed everything that they knew, and it inspired them then to change the world. And so we believe Jesus rose from the dead because the ones who experienced it were changed so radically by it. And my friends, we sit here as a church today because of this event in history. And we sing the songs we do because of this event in history. And I, as so many of you, stand here free from guilt and shame, and accusation, and, and sin, and death itself because of this event in history. And so I'm going to invite the band forward, and we're going to reflect on this uh, briefly for one more minute. You see, when we fully understand the resurrection, and we take seriously the death of Jesus on our behalf, it, it creates a context for our lives that begins to impact everything about our lives. And we begin to see the world differently, and through the lens of the resurrection, it changes everything about our lives. It impacts everything. It impacts the way we spend our time and, and who we spend our time with. It impacts the way we spend our money. It impacts the way we do our work. It impacts the way we speak with our words. It impacts the way we think with our brains. It impacts everything about how we live. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the lens by which we see and experience everything now. Now the skeptics and the naturalists, they're going to scoff at this. Now the atheists, they're going to scoff at this, and they're going to say that our experience, what we can touch and what we can feel and what we can observe through scientific methods, this should guide us in understanding what is real and what is true in the world. And I would say fine. Fine if you want to go that route, but let's not use a double standard. Let's follow that reasoning to the end. You must then admit That guilt and shame and pain and remorse that these two are genuine actual experiences, that you have felt these and that you have observed these, that this true is also true of you, that these experiences are true of you. And when you recognize that there is something wrong with you and your human experience and that you are a contributor to the wrong then in the world, then you have a choice to make. You see, when Jesus tells Thomas that he believed 
because he had seen and experienced. But not everybody, you know, that lived upon the face of the earth was going to have that luxury. He continues to say that those who would believe are blessed, even though they have not seen. Right? This is us. Isn't this us? Aren't we the ones who haven't seen? This is speaking to us. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's speaking about us. This word blessed is the Greek word makarios, and it simply means happy. Happy are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Happy, I mean, what, do, what do you mean, Jesus, that we will actually be happy? You know, Emily mentioned um, that, that this morning was a challenging morning for us. And um, I don't know, do you guys, do you guys dress up on Easter? I and mean, we're, we're a super casual church here. I mean, I bought a new shirt for Easter Sunday, but like, it's the first shirt I've purchased in a long time that didn't say Restoration Church on it somewhere. And, um, and so, you know, it's Easter morning, so you get dressed up a little bit, right? I'm still wearing the same, my one pair of jeans that I have. Um, but you get dressed up a little bit. And so, any, anybody else get dressed up this morning? I'm glad, you guys look great, by the way. I'm really, really glad you're here. You look phenomenal. Um, so we do, we do that as kind of a tradition in our household. You know, my, both my daughters are in dresses, and both my sons have new shirts, and, and uh, it's, it's cute and all. But my son, um, his name is Luke. I'll just throw that out there right out. <laughs> so you don't have to do the guesswork. His... Uh, he just hate, he hates jeans, I guess, you know? I got him a new pair of jeans, and he just, he hates jeans. I don't know what it is about jeans, but he just hates jeans. And, um, and we talked about it last night. He tried it on last night, and he was fine. He was fine last night, but this morning, he just, it just came out, you know? I am not wearing my jeans now! And he's yelling, and then what happens when your children yell? Don't you just start yelling a little bit? I mean, come on, guys. I'm the, I'm the pastor of this church. I'm gonna I'm gonna admit. I'm gonna be the first to admit this that I I um I lost it on my son this morning. Um, it took a long time to get me to that point, but I lost it on him. Like he just he was stubborn and he was yelling, and so I didn't know what else to get through to him. But I just I I let him have it. A lot of empty threats were th- thrown his way this morning. <laughs> but uh, I didn't know what else to do. Come on, he needed to get in his jeans. Um, But, but here's the thing, like, that, that's, that's got to be, that's a universal experience for anybody who has kids, right? And it's not just with kids. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, don't you find yourself um, screwing up from time to time? Be honest. Come on. I do. I'm not perfect. Like, I, I, I love Jesus, and I want his love to overflow from me, but I am not perfect, and I don't get it right all the time. And this morning was very much um, one of those times where I didn't get it right. I don't love the love of God to overflow through me and onto my child. I let whatever stubborn personality I have bump up against his stubborn personality, and it just created a war. On Easter morning of all mornings, of course, on Easter morning of all mornings. But we feel that, right? We feel it, right? That's just one little experience, and it might seem, you know, minute to what goes on in your household every day, but it's not just with our kids, it's with our coworkers, it's with our family members, it's with the people on the street. We find ourselves that we're not perfect, we're still selfish, we don't do it right all the time. And here's the thing, right? The, the atheist, the skeptic, the naturalist, they feel that as well. They, they feel the burden, they feel the brokenness, they feel the pain, they feel the shame and the guilt, the remorse, the accusations that we throw at each other, they feel it as well, but they have absolutely nothing to do with it all. They, they don't know what to do with it all. They feel it, and they heap it on, and it's burden, it's weighing them down, but there is nowhere to take it. There's nothing to do with it. I feel it, but I don't know what to do because I have no solution for it. There is no solution to any of this angst that I feel deep within my soul. 
And we feel it as well, right? There is no solution. See, Jesus knew that if he hadn't risen, that everything would be meaningless, that there would remain no solution to any of that angst that you feel, that we would still be dead in our sin and in our guilt and in our shame and in our pain and in our remorse. We would all still be lying dead in it all, carrying that burden till the day we die. You know, hope, yeah, it's a nice idea, but there is no hope. It's not real. Forgiveness is something that to be encouraged, but there is no source or power or ability to ever forgive anybody. Mercy is something we long for, but without the resurrection, guilt and fear, they're always going to win. Grace seems like a really beautiful concept. But without the resurrection, it's just an imaginary concept. You know, we desire relief from our shame and our guilt. That does haunt us, and it haunts not only me, but it haunts the atheists and the naturalists and the skeptics, and it haunts all of you guys. You have to admit that it haunts you too. We want hope that won't fade or won't disappoint us through all of our changing circumstances. We have these longings and desires that we long to be met, but where can they be met? You see, the wreck that is the human soul, the longings and the hopes and the desires for justice and the mourning and the grief we experience, it all remains unsatisfied without the resurrection. You guys have to understand that. It all remains unsatisfied without the resurrection. The naturalist and the skeptic, they understand this, and they wrestle with their shame, and they wrestle with their guilt, and they wrestle with the pain and the remorse, but for them, they have no outlet and they have no escape. All they have is the weight of that burden to carry until the day they die, when that burden finally destroys them. But Jesus says, happy. Happy are those who have not seen, who have not touched my hands, who have not touched my scars, who have not seen me in person, risen from the dead. Happy are those, and yet who have still believed. And so this is the meaning of the resurrection, that death and everything that is associated with it has been swallowed up in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My friends, you have an outlet, you have an escape, you have a place to put your burden, you have a place to put your angst, you have, a pl- you have a place to put your pain and your guilt and your shame and your remorse and your agony. You have a place to put it and it is at the feet of Jesus. You can let it go. And in return, he will say, have my life. This is the meaning of the resurrection and this is why it is so important. Yes, We believe it took place because the people in the first century who experienced talked about it and they were changed so significantly by it, but it has so much more implications. The implications go so much beyond that. We have life because Jesus defeated death, and I am a testimony to that as so many of you are a testimony to that. Your life too has been changed, and that gives credence to the resurrection.